0: Okay, we are going to be in Psalm 8, if you want to turn there. Um, We are on our tour through the Psalms. We did this last summer. We're doing it this summer. I was looking to see if Steve Blocker is here. Is he here? Steve, there you are. Congratulations, man, on the new new position. Um, Man, you made it in between the Psalms. That's really awesome. Just want to give you a shout-out. Andrew. Coltrane also just finished like five or six year apprenticeship, and is like gonna be doing electrical work now. So I'm excited for him too. Um, But we've been doing this tour through the Psalms, and to me it just makes me think. It reminds me of taking a tour, going and visiting national parks. Um, As a kid, we did that, and our family, when the kids were going up, cities, you know, meh. But if we can hit three or four national parks on a trip. That, to me, is the ideal thing to do, and I, that's why I feel like we're doing with the Psalms, and really, today, I feel like we're this is the Grand Canyon. We're at the rim, just a majestic view of Psalm 8. Now, before we get into it, I want to talk briefly about worldview. Whenever um, you talk about worldview with people, and when I used to work with international students, whenever a person made a conversion, made a desire, a, a commitment to accept Christ as their Lord and Savior, the free gift of salvation, and commit their life to Him, um, one thing we that we knew was really important, is people need to have not just a a heart conversion, a lordship conversion, but they need to have a worldview conversion, because a lot of us come to God not really having a correct view of Him, or who He is, or our reality, and that's why the Word of God is so important, that's why it's so important here. And if if you learn about worldviews, you learn that a worldview has five components. We all have a worldview, answers five questions. The first is, who is God, the most important question. Secondly, what's the universe, what's the nature of the universe? third would be, what is man? Humanity? What about me? What am I? Uh, the fourth one would be, can you, can you know anything? And if you do, how do you know? And the fifth would be, is there right and wrong? Is there ethics? And if so, how, where do you know it? Where do you get that from? So those are the five big questions. And Psalm 8 hits two of those, I think the two most important, which is who is God and who am I? And so I, I love this Psalm. I come into it this morning with great humility, with great excitement, enthusiasm, I have been living with this psalm for a long time, um, actually a couple of years, I almost did it two years ago with something else, and I, I just love this psalm, and so I hope, I hope you leave this morning with a, just a profound sense of the truth that's here. So it is, um, to me, one of the most majestic psalms, it's a great psalm. It is in the book of Psalm, it is the first psalm of praise. Psalm 1 is about David talking about, or not even David, we don't know who wrote it, but it's about the Torah and having a life centered on the Torah, the law, the Word of God. Psalm 2 is about the Messiah, and then you've got 3, three 4, 5, and 6, which are all lament psalms. So you just get hit right away with laments from the pen of David. And this is the first psalm of, of praise and worship. And if you don't mind, I want to read it again. And by the way, if you're, this psalm is so important. If you're a note taker, even kind of I'd love for you to have one of these because I think it's so significant what we're going to talk about. Is there anybody that wants one of these? Could I get a few people? Cabrinha, thank you. Yeah, if you've got a few of those hands um, to grab one of those. I want to read Psalm 8. I'm reading it out of the NIV, and actually I'm going to read it off my sheet because there is one word I changed from the NIV. And so we're going to do it off sheet. Thank you, Pat, for doing that. They are coming. So I'm going to read it off of this. If you've got your Bible open, if you want to read along word for word how I'm doing it, it would be the NIV. And again, when we get to verse 5, rather than saying the angels, I'm going to say God, and it's on here. So, all right. Psalm 8. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you were mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You've made them a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. Put, you put everything under their feet. All flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, all the birds in the sky, the fish in the sea, all that swims, the paths of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And God's people say to the word of the Lord, amen to that. (laughs) When you get in the psalm immediately in line one in verse one, you come to the theme, the big idea of the psalm. He establishes it right from the outset, and it is this in Psalm 8, it is This psalm is about the supreme and the all-surpassing greatness and majesty of God. The supreme and all-surpassing greatness and majesty of God. So look at verse 1. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That refrain is repeated again in verse 9, right? Bookending the psalm. So it's really significant. We'll come back to that in a little bit. The Hebrew translated majesty, it just means something that's excellent, that's beautiful, that's splendid, that's majestic. So it was a good choice of the word. Um, when I think of majestic, I don't know what you think of, but I know what I think of. I tend to think of the Rocky Mountains, right? Usually the Colorado Rockies. This is the Grand Tetons. I love this image of the Tetons with the Snake River um, in the foreground. In Psalm 104, 1 2, the author wrote, "'My Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty.'" The Lord wraps Himself in light as with a garment. He stretches out the heavens like a tent. And before moving on, if if you're much of a note taker, I like to circle like important words or repeated words. I'd like you to circle that word our in verse 1 and in verse 9 because it's really significant. Um, Like the Lord's Prayer, which doesn't start, my Father who art in heaven, May your name be honored. It's our Father who art in heaven. This psalm is not Lord, my Lord, but it's Lord, our Lord. And I love the communal nature of this because we live in a very individualistic culture where it can really become just about me and God. But we've got to remember that this psalm is written to the community of people and the community matters. So I, I love how, um, how he does that. And then David's going to go on. So he starts with, this, with the, the supreme and all surpassing. Greatness and majesty of God. And he's going to give us in this psalm, in between one and nine, he's going to give us the two ways that we see God's all-surpassing majesty. Two ways we see his all-surpassing majesty. First, we're going to see his majesty in creation. We're going to see it in creation, in the stunning greatness of the heavens. And then he's going to have a question a big question. And then it's going to be the second way we see his greatness, which is in, um, in his creation of humanity and in the soaring greatness of mankind. So that's the two ways he's going to show us the majesty of God with that question in between. So let's start with the first one. God's majesty seen in creation, the stunning greatness of the heavens. In the second half of verse 1, David says, you have set, I just love the intentionality of that word. You have set your glory in the heavens. You placed it there. In Psalm 19, 1 to 4, a psalm we're going to look at in August, Uh, maybe the Yellowstone of the Psalms, perhaps. David wrote this, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them, yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the earth. So scripture's clear. God's majesty is evident for all to see in that nighttime sky. Look at verse 2. Through the praise of children and infants, you've established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. So, though his, his glory is clearly seen in the heavens, those who were against Him, His enemies, refuse to acknowledge it, and they refuse to give Him glory for it. But it doesn't matter, that's what Dave's saying, it doesn't matter, because children and infants, they do acknowledge Him. They do acknowledge Him. Um, that Hebrew word for children is actually the word for a toddler. So, it's toddlers and infants. Of our grandkids, Della right now, you know, six months into walking, five, about six, seven months, she's a toddler, toddles around. So it's, it's the smallest of children who actually do give him praise. So even the babbling of infants and toddlers sing his praises to God, sing their praises to him. Derek Kidner, one of my favorite commentators on the psalm says, his praise is not only chanted on high, but it's also echoed from the cradle and the nursery. Do you realize that perhaps the greatest worship that's happening this morning on this campus is actually next door in the building with the infants and toddlers, that that may be where the real glory and praise is going on. Isn't that a cool thought? In 1 Corinthians 1, 27-29, Paul says, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are. Do you not know, praise God for that? Because I am low and weak and foolish. And praise the Lord that these are the kind of people he uses to nullify the things that, that are. Jesus quotes this verse in Matthew 21 when he has a confrontation with the religious leaders who are very angry. Triumphal entries happen. People have been praising him, welcoming him as the, the coming Messiah. He gets in the temple. And here's what we're told in Matthew 21, 14 to 16. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law, they saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked him? Yes, he replied. Have you never read the Grand Canyon of the Psalms, where David says, from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth praise. I just love that reality. I love this truth that the voice of toddlers and infants reigns supreme, and one day, one day, God's adversaries, both earthly and heavenly, both earthly and heavenly, will be drowned out and silenced by the smallest among us. I just love that idea. So verse 3 takes us back to the heavens. We start in the heavens, takes us back. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, and I want to stop there before we get to the question. Um... You know, usually when the Bible speaks of God's creating in the Old Testament, it talks about the universe being the work of His hand. This is the only place it talks... And you see that in verse 6, by the way. It's down there. You might draw an arrow from fingers to hand. This is the only place in Scripture that talks about the creation, the universe being the work of His fingers. Um, And I really love that. It's an anthropomorphism. We don't take it literally, but I want you to know that image of fingers to me is really rich and... All week I've been thinking a lot about that, and I've had a number of things that came to my mind that to me that kind of communicates. Have you ever heard a person say something like, I have more power in my little finger than you have in your old body? You ever heard that kind of thing? Yeah, communicating power, strength, and I just see like God's like, I have so much power that I spun the whole universe off my little finger. Finger language also communicates God being personally and intimately involved in something, Right? Um, When speaking the moon and stars, I love how David uses that word set, how he uses that word and it makes me think of a skilled jeweler, a skilled jeweler with his fingers personally setting a diamond into a wedding ring, just perfectly setting it there for some bride, right, or some some woman who's going to get engaged. Uh, I just love that. To me, that's that's that idea of just setting something in a perfect place. By the way, we have a daughter getting married on Saturday so I won't be here next week, but I'd rather be in North Carolina next week than here. Um, Robert Alter, a great Hebrew scholar, he says that this idea of the fingers implies a very delicate design, and that makes me think when I was a young lad, me and my older brother used to love building models of World War II destroyers and battleships. Anybody here ever do that? It's a great little hobby to have. Um, and I want you to know when you did that, it required a delicate touch. It required your fingertips, careful attention. You just had to be very, very delicate with and give attention to detail. So when I see this creating with fingers, that's kind of what I envision. I mean, look at the back of that. Those, all those little pieces, I mean, to, to glue that and to set that on there, just a lot of work. And I also think of one other thing when I thought about this finger language. I was thinking, because I love sports, I was thinking of somebody who spins a basketball on their finger. And I was just imagining God just spinning the universe off of a finger. Isn't that incredible just to think about? So I love that finger language. And then out of this considering of the vast heavens, the work of God's fingers, David asks a question. I love this. He's conversing with God in his personal journal. Remember, that's what these are. He's going to ask God a question. And it's not just a question. It is the question. It's the question. Verse 4, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. In Psalm 144.3, David asks it this way, Lord, what are human beings that you care for them? Mere mortals that you think of them. Job asked a similar question, Job 7.17, what is mankind you make so much of them that you give them so much attention? I mean, that question to me is so understandable and it's so relatable. It's so relatable. We have all been somewhere out of the city, right, stopped under the stars and taken in the beauty of the heavens. Have we all not had that experience? Um, I remember when we used to pick up international students and drive them back to Emporia, especially the ones from the big city. We would stop halfway here, pull up on an off-ramp, get out, because a lot of them had never seen the stars because of the city lights that they had been in, and they just stood in awe. Um, I love going out on hikes in the Flint Hills to the Prairie Park Preserve. Go out there, have a picnic supper with a group or your family or friends, by yourself sometimes. Usually I don't do the picnic supper by myself, but go out there and do that hike. Get up there, see the magnificent bison just 30 yards away. Um, Try not to spook them or create a stampede in your direction, right? Going on, missing the rattlesnakes, there's a few. Um, Going up onto a hilltop, there's a special hilltop out there. Great view of the sunset, just brilliant. You watch that thing go down, and then it starts getting dark, and then you start walking back. And by the time you get back, it's just pitch black, and you stop, um, and you just you just stand in wonder of the stars. I mean, you ever had that? Ex- I know we've all had that experience, right? Um, it's jaw dropping. The Milky Way galaxy, just incredible. You stand in awe of that. Um, but I want you to know there is a better view. Do you know that? There's a better view. If you've never been on a mountaintop in Colorado, at night, pitch black, and looked at the heavens, the detail and just the vastness of the the Milky Way is just amazing, Um, breathtaking. My first response to that is always a response of wonder, of the heavens, and to be drawn in praise and worship to God who is the creator of all that. That's always my first response that kind of flows out of me. Frequently, I break out in song, Uh, A particular song, one we sang, How Great Thou Art. It depends on who's there, whether I sing it out loud or not. More often, I'll do that if I'm alone. But I break out in song, and I'm going to take a risk this morning. Um, Can we sing that together? Can we sing it again? Just imagine we're out under the starry sky. Oh, Lord, my God, when I an awesome wonder... I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, your power throughout the you. Then sing my soul, Savior God to thee. How great thou art, how great thou art. Then sings my soul, my grave God to thee. How great thou art, how Thanks for covering me on that. But that's what comes out of me all the time when I'm out there. And at times I have a second response, not just wonder at creation and the Creator, but times I've had the question, who am I in all of this? Have you ever felt that way? Who am I in all of this? I mean, you become aware of your insignificance as you're dwarfed by the unfathomable immensity of the universe. Just feel dwarfed by that. And compared to such vastness, it's like it's inconceivable that human beings have significance or meaning, right? Everybody's, I think, had that kind of a thought. It's unimaginable that God would be mindful of me and would care and give attention to me. I mean, that kind of thought comes up. Back on April 2nd, in my second sermon on Yahweh, Tzabaoth, Yahweh, I am the Lord, sovereign Lord of heaven's armies, um, we answered this question. We asked and answered it. Does, the, does God, the creator and sovereign over the whole universe, does God even have the time and the mental space to care about me? And we answered that question with the story of Hannah, if you remember, Here, David's already assuming that God is mindful and that he cares. He's already assuming that's the reality. His heavenly gaze brings him um, a different question. And you know, David was a shepherd. Thousands of evenings he spent pondering the heavens. I mean, imagine that. Here's his question. What is mankind that you're mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. The Hebrew word for mindful, zakar, it means to remember, to call to mind, to pay attention to. And the Hebrew word for care literally means to attend to, to take care of. So David's clear, we're not simply an afterthought to God, but we are his primary focus, his primary focus. And then, he so he asks the question, and then verses 5 to 8, David's going to give us the answer to the question. And here is where we're going to see God's all-surpassing majesty in humanity, in humanity, in the soaring greatness of mankind. And we're going to see that... Soaring greatness of mankind, David's going to spell out in two ways. First, in our nature and our identity, and then in our responsibility and calling. In our nature and identity and our responsibility and calling. So, first, for verse 5 speaks to our nature and identity. So, look at verse 5. You have made them a little lower than God. Okay, that's how I put it on the sheet. And again, on your note page, I put God in italics because the NIV reads, a little lower than the angels. Um. <clears throat> So we'd we'll say we're a little lower than the angels. The Hebrew behind that God or the angels translation is just simply the word. The, Hebrew, the word behind that is the word Elohim, which is the Hebrew word for God. The vast majority of times Elohim references God. That's what it refers to. Um, and that's why I'll get to it in a minute. A lot of translations, that's how they translate it. It also, though, can be translated... Um, that word Elohim, as angels, it can refer to angels, and it's translated that way here in the NIV. It can refer to heavenly beings, which is kind of similar. That's how the ESV translates it. Um, And if that were the case, it's just referring to the heavenly host, that the council, the heavenly council that sits around the throne of God, of divine beings that he created. But as I thought about this, as I read some Hebrew lexicons, looked at the commentators, there seemed to be a general consensus that since Elohim in the Old Testament primarily refers to God, the great I Am, Yahweh, since it refers to Him, that that's the best way to translate it here because there's nothing in the context that tells me to translate it differently. And so that's why I've put God in there, even though that's not how the NIV does it. And most English translations agree with it being translated God. The NLT, the New American Standard, the Contemporary Standard Bible, the Contemporary English, the New Revised. So I'm going with God, okay? Um, It can mean the other, but that's I'm the one that made the sheet, so uh, deal with it. But I love how the CEV translates it. You have made us a little lower than yourself, a little lower than yourself. I mean, is that not mind blowing? That God created humanity a little lower than Himself. In the Hebrew, it literally reads, "You made them lower a little." You made them lower a little. And then back to verse 5. You made them a little lower than God or yourself and crowned them with glory and honor. Crowned. That's what you do to a king, right? A queen. Hebrew word for glory, kavod, speaks of weight, significance, glory. Obviously, um, it's a word used of the glory of God all the time. Primarily used of Him, but here it's used of humanity. Um, Obviously, the glory that we have is what would be called a derivative glory, just like the moon reflects the light of the sun, so we reflect the glory of God, it's His. But yet, we're crowned with glory, still amazing. And then the Hebrew word for honor, badar, it, it means splendor, grandeur. I mean, He crowns us with honor, with grandeur, splendor. And this glory and honor, then David is gonna concretely drive that home in verses six to eight where he is going to talk about the soaring greatness of mankind by referring to our responsibility and our calling. So look at verse 6. Look at verse 6. You made them rulers over the works of your hands, and you put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds, the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky, the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. Those last two verses being the same three categories mentioned in Genesis 1 animals and land, air, and sea. But here's the clear point of these verses, of these verses, that God has de- delegated to mankind a mastery over creation, a mastery over all of it, over all of creation. He has made the rest of creation subject to mankind. And that, by the way, is one of the things I absolutely love about God, that I love about Him, because I there are some people that when they talk of God or the way you hear about the way they've created a theology of God is He's this micromanaging, control freak kind of God. And that's not the God I see in Scripture. I see God's greatness and His goodness in His giving away of real power, real authority, real responsibility to mankind. He's giving that away. Not giving it up, but He's giving it away. His willingness to partner with us and to let us share in his work. To me, I, I, I stand in awe of that. He's, again, he's not a control freak. So he gives us majesty over creation. Majesty, he gives us um, mastery. In these verses, when you're reading Psalm 8, you can't help but to think of Genesis 1. And David really is, this is his poetic commentary on Genesis 1. So I want to lay Genesis 126 beside this. And I want to show you how they're saying the same thing. So I want to start with humanity's nature and identity. And here they are side by side. Psalm 8.5 says, you have made them, we're just a little lower than God, we're crowned with glory and honor. Genesis 1.26 puts it this way. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image and in our likeness. So this being made a little lower than God, being crowned with glory and honor, it's the equivalent of being made and created in the image of God. It's the same thing. And an image, by the way, I want to remind us, all of us, we don't probably need this reminder, but applies to all of us in this room, whether male or female, because Genesis 127 goes on to say, God created mankind in His image, in the image of God He created them, male and female He created them. We all bear the dignity and the crowning of God, okay? And then moving on to humans' responsibility and calling, I want to lay the two side by side again. So this time, Psalm 8. 6 to 8 with Genesis 126 again. The Psalm 8, you made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds, the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky, the fish in the sea. And Genesis 126 says, so they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. I mean, isn't that beautiful? The Word of God is so beautiful. You know, you have Genesis 1, and then David in this this Grand Canyon psalm, he's he's just poetically taking the same truth and just saying it in a different way. The grandeur of humanity, right? The grandeur of humanity. So let me summarize verses 5 to 8. Um, In these psalms, David, in this psalm, David is really showing us our place in the cosmos. That's what he's doing. And though the universe is vast, and it seems... To impart to mankind a sense of insignificance and powerlessness, the opposite is actually true. The opposite is actually true. God has given to mankind a position of extraordinarily elevated status in the universe. We have a very elevated status. I mean, we're created a little lower than God. That means we're, God has invested in us stupendous worth and great value in our nature and identity, we reflect Him. We image Him to all of creation, to all of creation. And in our responsibility and calling, we represent Him. We represent Him. We, we co-rule with Him. We are co-regents over all of creation. So today, I just, I, let us not leave here without me saying just behold the greatness of being human The greatness of you, each of you individually, the greatness of even me, of even me that is in this psalm. And then we come to verse 9. We circle back around to the refrain, the start of the psalm, and back to the main point. I love that he's talked about humanity and who we are, but he's back to the main point. And the main point in verse 9 is, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. How majestic is your name. And that's Psalm 8. You see why that's, to me, that's the Grand Canyon of the Psalms? I love the views, the vistas. So I want, you to, I want to take that idea of those bookends again, because they're really important. Because verse 1 and verse 9, they end, they begin and end with God. And in this Psalm, I've tried to put it on the sheet, <clears throat> It's, it was common for Jewish people when they would write things to structure them where they would have a beginning and ending similar. And then this, the next two sections, section two and the second from last would kind of match and there would be a center. That was a really common way for them to write. And when they did that, the center was usually the most important part. That's where they really wanted you to, to direct your eye. And the center of this psalm is verses three and four. And the question, you know, who is man that you're mindful of him? That's, that's the center of it. But I just want to point out, even though the center is really on that question, that the word you and your occurs five times in those two verses. You know, I would circle those five times. So even the center is about God because He's the one who created humanity. And that word you and your occurs 15 times. This is a short psalm, but 15 times. So the whole focus of this psalm is really on God. Yes, He created the universe and He cares for us, but He's the one that's done it. So it's really, it's about Him from beginning to end. That's what I love about this psalm. I mean, look at, if you're a a person that likes to circle things in the text, look at the you haves in this psalm. The power of what they say in verse 1, you have set your glory in the heavens. Verse 2, you have established a stronghold against your enemies. Verse 5, you have made them a little lower than yourself verse 6 you made them rulers so I just want to be clear the main purpose of this psalm is David is drawing our eye to God to the creator and to the supreme all-surpassing greatness of God and his majesty that's the whole point of this psalm can we like give God some glory and some honor that he deserves for who he is because that's what this psalm is about I'd like to invite you to stand with me. I'd like to read this psalm as a community because it's meant to be a communal psalm and it's going to be on the screen. So stand with me if you would. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you're mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than yourself and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands and you put everything under their feet. All flocks and herds, the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky, and the fish in the sea, all that swims the paths of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the word of the Lord, and his people said, amen. Okay, be seated. I got a little bit more, a little bit more, if you don't mind. I love this psalm for a lot of reasons, and it's man, it's really captured my heart. And one of the things I love about it is I'm going to come back to what I started with at the beginning, those five questions that every worldview has to answer. Who is God? Is there a God? Who is He? The universe, what's the nature of the universe? What about mankind? What are we really? Um, Knowledge, can we know? And if so, how do we know? Ethics, is there right and wrong? And if so, where do I find that? Where does that come from? five really important questions every worldview answers, that all of us have beliefs about that, that He is focusing on those two. um, The two most important, who is God and who are we? Who is God and who am I? And as a follower of Jesus, we need to have clarity on these two questions. Do you know that? We need it deep in our soul. We need to know who God is, not just knowledge. We've got to feel it in our gut. And we need to know who we are. Again, not just knowledge. we got to feel it in our gut. That's why I love this psalm, because it hits me in the gut. So I want to take those two in reverse. First, who am I? How many of you have seen Les Mis, the musical? I love that musical. The question that gets asked multiple times through that musical. Who am I? God, who am I really? According to Psalm 8, we are royalty. We're royalty. In verses 5 and 6, look at the terms that are used. Crowned. I mean, underline these things, crowned, glory, honor, ruler, put under his feet, all terms of royalty, and not just any royalty, that we are royal image bearers, royal image bearers. You know, England has royalty, right? And they're kind of on the downward slope, more and more people over there are like, we need to get rid of that thing, you know, you still follow it a little bit, but matters less and less. But I want you to know, if you are a royal image bearer of God, once a king or queen of Narnia, always a king and queen of Narnia. You'll never lose that. you never lose that. By the way, for those of you who have the Garen Sermon bingo, I just crossed off the C.S. Lewis box, which is at the center, okay? <laughs> Not today, so it's going to be hard to get a bingo today. Um, I want you to know the dignity of humanity proclaimed here and in Genesis 1 is staggering. Staggering. In our nature, in our identity, in our responsibility, in our calling, we were designed with soaring greatness. God built that into us. In this narrative and in the creation story, but especially in Psalm 8, only human beings are created in the image of God, right? Only human beings are a little lower than God. Only human beings are crowned with glory and honor. Only human beings were given rule over creation. You know, is it any wonder that if you take the largest object, the largest star in the whole universe, and you take the smallest subatomic particle, that you find that the average between those two is six feet. Is there any wonder that that's not how God designed the universe? This view of humanity was unparalleled by anything in that age. No religion, no view in the, in the ancient Near East where David lived had this high view of humanity. Nobody in the ancient world, period. Not the Greeks, not the Romans, not the ancient Chinese. They had some people elevated to high status, but a lot of people were left at low status, okay? This is unparalleled, what we're reading. This view of humanity and this Western emphasis that we, we swim in now and we just accept it of human dignity and of human rights for all, Okay? Do you know where that came from? That came from the Bible. It came from texts like this Psalm 8. It came from Genesis 1. It came from Jesus and the things that he taught. And then the Jesus community, the movement that he created, though we are imperfect, is what led in our culture to this emphasis on human dignity and human rights. And if you don't believe me, just I give you a few books Thomas Cahill's book, The Gift of the Jews. Um, Tom Holland, an atheist who just was an expert on on Rome and all of that and loved Rome at first and began to see how inhumane Rome was and then he's like, what is it that flipped Europe and realized it was Christianity and he wrote a whole book, just recent, last couple years, thick but worth a read. Or John Orberg's, Who is this man? I just want you to know that the Bible and Jesus set the stage for where we are today and how we value all people, men, women, young and old, rich and poor. You know, As I read this psalm, I am reminded that some of us desperately need to be reminded of who we are. Some of us desperately need to be reminded of who we are. I am a royal image bearer of the creator of the universe. Can you say that with me? I am a royal image bearer of the creator of the universe. If I have accepted Jesus, if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've taken his His death, burial, and resurrection that was offered to pay for your sins, you've accepted the gift of salvation. Here's what I want you to know the Scripture says about who you are. Can I speak about me? Because I've accepted him. It's all his grace, all his glory. I am a child of God. Beloved by him, his favor rests upon me, one in whom he delights, one whom he loves with a perfect love, with an everlasting word. In the words of Psalm 103, 4, I am crowned with love and compassion. As a person who's accepted Christ and, and I've, I, I have that relationship with, with him, the Holy Spirit of God literally lives inside of me. I am the temple, the home of God. Jesus lives in me. Can you imagine that reality? I can't even fathom that, that having accepted Christ and his death on the cross for me and that forgiveness from him, that I am now a citizen of the unshakable kingdom of God, and there's a lot shaken in the world these days, isn't it, and that I get to stand on the solid rock of God and his kingdom, and having accepted Christ, I have the promise of sharing with him eternally. He will share with me his glory forever and ever on new creation. That's Who I am. And if you know Jesus, that's who you are. Who doesn't need to hear that today? Anybody here? I need to hear that all the time. I need that all the time. But second, I want to end with God, because that's what this psalm is about. So who is God? Because remember, that's the point. He's the creator and sovereign Lord of the universe. That's who he is. He is the one who spun the whole universe off of his finger. That's who he is. He's the one who spoke, and the universe was. It's a universe that's so immense, so immense. If you just took our galaxy, just trying to imagine size, okay? If North America were our galaxy, North America, pretty huge. I mean, what, six-day drive all the way across, four or five if you're young? I don't know. If, you were, if North America were our galaxy... Our solar system would be a small cup of coffee in Granada Coffee Shop in Emporia, Kansas. That's what our solar system would be. And the earth would be a small speck, one little coffee ground in the bottom of that cup. That's how immense this universe is. And our galaxy that I just tried to give you a sense of is a speck of dust compared to the rest of the universe. Okay, Just a speck of dust. We live in in a universe that's so huge that if the distance between the earth and the sun were a piece of paper... The distance from the earth to the next star, <clears throat> to the next star would be 70 feet tall. Okay? Earth to sun, next star, 70 feet tall. The distance to the edge of our galaxy would be 310 miles high of paper, stacked up. Okay. That's how immense this universe is. And it's a universe, again, we're just a speck. Our galaxy is just a speck. It's a universe with. Brian would appreciate this. He was in first service. I could tell his heart was warmed. 100 billion galaxies, each with 100 billion stars on average. And if you throw in all the planets, 200 billion trillion celestial objects in the universe that we know of right now. I don't even get that, right? It's almost meaningless, but it is unfathomable. It's unfathomable. And all of that with the snap of his finger. All of that with a snap of his finger. Just this past spring, NASA released their first photos from the new James Webb Space Station. It's produced the deepest uh, and sharpest infrared images of the distant universe ever produced. And through this telescope, they've discovered thousands of new galaxies, not just stars, galaxies. Can I just show you a few pictures? They get better as we go. Uh, oops, yeah, there. That's how important you are. That's a picture from that, zoomed in on some galaxies, probably a nebula is my guess, isn't that beautiful? And the last picture I saved uh, for a particular reason, because the next photo I'm going to show you is a slice of our universe that if you stood, if you went out up on a Colorado mountain and you held a grain of sand up between your fingers, and that's that size of the universe, they took a shot of that, and I want to show you what they saw. If you were up close, those aren't stars, those are galaxies. Those are galaxies, hundreds of galaxies, all created by God. So who is God? He's the creator of the universe, He's the sovereign King. He is Lord. Can you say that with me? He is Lord. And I hope you get my gist here. The psalm is clear. David is mindful of us and he cares for us. I hope you get my gist. Tell me, do you think the God who created this vast universe, do you think he exists to be your and my personal assistant to help me manage my life? Do you think that's why he exists? Do you think this creator of the universe, the Lord, do you think that he exists to be my own, personal cons- my own personal consultant to help me get every little need and whim that I want in my life to work out just how I want it? Do you think that's why he exists? I think some of us, all of us, I mean, I struck, we all struggle with this. Some of us need to get God's lordship in the right place in our life, right? We need to get his lordship in the right place in his life. I'm not the center of it all. Very important. Soaring greatness he put into us, but I'm not the center of it all. He is. And though he is mindful of us and he cares for us, ultimately, ultimately, he does not exist to serve me. I serve and obey him. He's not the center of my story, I'm the center of his story. There is a God, and I am not him. I am not him. Can we pray? Lord, I stand in awe of this psalm, it, the grandeur of it, the, the majesty, but how it points to you and your majesty. And so I just, as I've just meditated on this and let this soak into my soul, Lord, the, the greatness of who you are just shines and stands out. You, the, the one who just spun the whole universe into being from your own finger, who spoke it into existence. And your glory is so evident, Lord, in that. I just stand in awe. And I'm so humbled, Lord, that little old me in the midst of all of this, that you're mindful and that you care, and you've built great majesty and grandeur into us. And Lord, that knowing you just means that I'm your beloved child in whom you live, and I'm a citizen of your eternal, unshakable kingdom, and you're gonna share your glory with me forever. And I stand in awe of that. But Lord, it's all about you. Make us a people, Lord, who take the reality of this psalm away, not just about who am I, but about who are you. And Lord, we need all of us I know we need to live more under your lordship so this week may we be people who live out the reality of our greatness but that we live under your greatness lord following you as our lord giving you our lives so I pray in the name of Jesus the one who spun everything we're told who created all things who was there in the beginning we pray in his name amen all right 12 so you're you're sent to live this reality out of who you are but more importantly of who he is he is lord So you're sent to live under his lordship this week, all right?